I had just shared a Rumi quote, look at the birds making great circles in the sky. Um, they fall, and it is in falling that they get their wings. Oh, that's so true. It's so, so true. It's been my life story. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it. I mean, I've jumped a couple of times now, sometimes by force, sometimes I, was <laughs> I jumped willingly. But the one time I jumped willingly, it felt like, like you do stay in the safety of the land. But with the anxiety and the fear it brings to you? Mm-hmm. Or do you jump and take a leap of faith into the unknown? And I always say, I mean, I give speeches about that, right? You, I mean, you'll be shocked, you know. Sometimes you land on water. Sometimes you get your wings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Somet- I mean, like, but you always land. Mm-hmm. Where do you want to take the risk? Do you die out of your own fear? Or do you take a leap of faith and trust that you can at least own your journey? Welcome to Wild Talk. 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 Let's head outside. Hi, friends. Thanks for joining us for Wild Talk, a show about people who work and think in uncharted territory. I'm Jay Erickson. And I'm Emily Kagan Trenchard. Humanitarian, activist, writer, and TV host Zainab Selby has become a leading voice for women's rights. A survivor of struggles, both geopolitical and personal, Zainab has taken her hard-won insights about conflict and healing and used that empathy to organize and inspire. Along the way, she's developed a deep connection to the natural world, where she finds rich metaphors that inform her work. Zainab grew up in Iraq in the shadow of Saddam Hussein's regime before fleeing to the United States at the age of 19. In 1993, she founded Women for Women, a global humanitarian effort that has helped half a million women affected by conflict. Her awards and accolades include being named one of Foreign Policy Magazine's 100 Leading Global Thinkers and People Magazine's 25 Women Changing the World. She is the author of several books, including her most recent, Freedom is an Inside Job, owning our darkness and our light to heal ourselves and the world. We met Zainab for a crisp, socially distanced, leaf-crunching walk at a nature preserve in my hometown of Pauling, New York, 75 miles north of New York City. It was November, just days after the presidential election, and it was already clear that whatever the final results, America was still divided. So, impressed by her experience working with survivors of global conflicts, we wanted to ask Zainab about what comes next in the wake of Me Too and Black Lives Matter, and as we're confronting the growing threat of violent extremism in the United States, now what? How can societies and souls overcome our greatest failings? Being in the woods with Zainab seemed to bring out every bit of her passionate wisdom. There was no time for small talk. We dove right in. So here we are. It's my daily ritual. Uh-huh. And you do it in the morning usually? You know, either in the morning or in the summer, I was doing it also in the evening. Mm-hmm. So on the one end of the, the day. The experience I have with nature is... Um, it's an emotional one for me. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I grew up in the city. Mm and very disconnected from nature. 
even though I grew up overseas in Baghdad, Iraq, we have nature, we had gardens and all of that. But I like came when I came to America 30 years ago, I was like, birds, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like it was like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and then I started being introduced to nature and, and the, the turning point for me was a, a retreat I did in North Canada with indigenous people there where they put me out on the land for four days. It was a leadership retreat actually, you know, and part of it was to be put out on the land with nothing. By yourself? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sleeping bag, um, but you're not supposed to take book, pen, paper. Oh wow. The exercise is that you have to stay present to nature. Like you're not supposed to write, read, <laughs> do anything. Like you and you. And I just would lay down and I do all kinds of things with nature and I would lay down. And that was my first time. It was a transformative moment because I, I feel, I heard Earth's heartbeats. I was just like laid on in, on the ground and it's just like, <gasps> I never heard this before. Hmm. And that was a transformative moment. It created another, a new connection for me. Fast forward, the last year, as the last year I nearly died. Literally, it was very extreme case of Lyme disease and a viral infection that took me to the ICU for a week and there was a moment in which I could not breathe and I thought I was going to die and um, and I breathed with a lot of interventions and doctors and machines and all of that but it took me a very long time afterwards to be able to breathe actually normally and to walk and to eat normally and to it took me months and months and months and months of trying to even just get my energy back to like just just to be human back and nature saved me I, I'm not joking I'm not even saying it's romantic this has saved me I would I moved out of the city and I would walk I, I did not have energy to walk like the, just the stamina. So I walked by the beach and I felt every wave was just like giving me a force. It was like giving me, it's like telling me, go, keep going. And I was mm. like, you know, and I would walk, you know, I was like trying to put, train myself to walk again. And then each wave became like my support system, like go, keep going. And then the trees, I started walking every day also. By the I moved to another place by trees. And each tree, I would hold it like, you know, like, <gasps> you know, and it's just like, and I feel like I was getting like the energy, you know, trees support each other in their uh, roots. Yeah. They feed even the weak. They don't abandon the weak. They actually, it's in their best interest to keep the, even the weakest tree even alive. Even across species. Across, yeah. right? So I would like, hold it and just just so I can get energy so I can walk just, just to breathe again you know and I just feel like nature was my 
you know, what do you call it? Fans. Mm. <laughs> Not fans. What do you call the support people? Like cheerleaders. You can, cheerleaders. cheerleaders. You can go. You can keep going. Mm. And so I have since. It's my friend. <laughs> you know, and it gave me life again. And I thank it. I, so in here when I come, it's a long answer to your question. It's beautiful. Um, I have different conversations. You know, sometimes... This is like, this is a tree I love. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes, and this is a friend taught it to me, I just like take a tree with a big, and I just like put my back on it, just like, you know, like we often are hunched back and moving, and I just like allow myself to be held by it, you know? And I can even feel the difference right now. It's just like I'm... I got you. Mm. You know, I, I believe as we transform and we go into our lives, we need that, the, the energy, the person, anything that, that I got mm. you, mm. you know, mm. believe that I got you here. And I feel like when I do that, this tree reminds me, I got you. Mm. Yeah. That's so powerful. I also love how intimate that relationship seems to have become for you right sometimes people think nature is this big vastness but to you it's it's it really truly sounds like a, a friendship oh my on gosh. a in very most personal level yes yes i mean there was um when i was still building my energy you know i was staying at a home in um, a friend's home and there was a peonies in the spring and i was just emerging like i was getting better every day but thanks to nature basically you know mm -hmm. and there was these peonies and the peonies open up very slowly mm -hmm. <laughs> and I felt my life oh we went on the yellow trail I suppose yeah. that's the red trail shall we go back yeah. oh, sorry I've been so the peonies so the peonies so so I would meditate every day um, by the peonies, you know? And I was just like, and they blossomed so slowly. And I felt my life was connected to them, you know? Mm. Like as they were like opening up and as they opened up, I was opening up. So yes, it's very personal. And it's personal for me because when we separate ourselves from it, whether it is with each other or whether with us and nature, when we separate ourselves from it, we dehumanize the other. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but, you know, objectify the other. Then we, 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 we don't acknowledge their soul or their hearts, you know. Um, so for me, part of solving the issues with nature and climate change and all of that is to personalize it and to learn from it. And actually... I mean, it's a great teacher. <laughs> it's just a great teacher. I feel like the only difference between us and trees, us and animals, they just move in a different rhythm. But it's this, the behavior patterns of tree, of a mother tree with her child tree is actually so similar to us. <laughs> or, I have a teacher who used to say, we human move so fast that we stop listening to the wisdom of nature and all what we need to do is, 
is move in the speed of nature, which is slow to medium. And when we move slow to medium, we actually are able to hear it and, and understand its wisdom better. And I think that's what COVID period did. It sort of forced us to go slow to medium. And, and that's the connection that we're all talking about with nature, right? All what it takes is slowing down to understand the intelligence that is all around us. And when we disconnect and think that we are superior than the others, then we lose out. It's the same thing with women for women. So in the case of being a victim of war, you otherize her by saying, she's a victim, I'm not. Like she's in this culture, I am not. This was before the Me Too movement, which created some sort of solidarity with women. But frankly, up until then, it was very frustrating talking about the, the, the realities of women in other cultures to American women because they kept on seeing it as a cultural issue, as a war issue. These are other women. That's happening over there. And it's happening over there. And, you know, one of the things that I love the most about the Me Too movement is American women spoke up and not only American women is the peak of American Hollywood celebrities so it's like oh we are also abused it's like finally yeah finally you saw the truth and all this time we cover it and we say oh it's these Congolese women and these Afghan women and these Bosnian women and all of these women the other women now they go through extreme horrible things but Sexism is sexism. In one culture, it expresses itself in an extreme way. In another culture, it expresses itself in a settled way. Mm. But it's still sexism. Right. Right? So, for me, this I launched Woman for Woman in 1993. The simplest act was to write a check. Because it's accessible. But what I wanted is to see her and for her to see you. Ah. Because in our stories as humans, we are equal. In our monetary realities, we are not. In our technologies, we are not. But a heart is a heart wherever you are and we are equal. The sorrow, the pain, the joy, the love. We all understand these feelings. So that was a mandatory, is write to her, share To her individual. Right. Yeah. And that became the transformative experience, is the writing for both sides. Because for the woman who is receiving, for the victim side, to simplify the word, she was being seen. Mm. And that was giving her an emotional support that I am not alone. The world has not forgotten about me. Yeah, there is this person, you know, named Samantha who lives at this address who sees me. Absolutely. And for Samantha, oh, I mean, you'd be shocked how the American woman, or we had also women from 68 countries, um, was being impacted. And I remember one story... Of a wealthy woman 
husband worked in Wall Street and she had been communicating with her what we call sister in Rwanda. Over time, she even went to visit her in person and then Lehman Brothers happened, the crash of the financial market happened and they lose everything. They lose a lot. Mm. And she calls me and she said, had I not been in communication with that woman, with my sister, and had I not visited her in her home and understood her story, not only of loss, but of rebuilding, I would not have handled the crash and the loss of material things I encountered in my life in the same way. Wow. I would have been devastated, but now I look at it and I smile and I was like, wow, okay, we can do it. That's so incredible. That feels very much this feedback loop of, you know, helping the women who've experienced trauma through war, they're helping with their emotional resilience, which in turn feeds resilience and emotional awareness. It's, it, it is the, like a mycelial network Completely. of the trees, right? And just like with nature, if we nurture nature, nature will nurture us. You know, it's like exactly the same pattern. Mutual aid. It's totally mutual. Now, I find it fascinating. So the world is like talks about the accomplishment, like she raised $120 million, sort of big deal in the women's movement because women's groups don't go above a certain budget still get marginalized funding so it was a big story but not one of these acknowledgements talk about the letters mm. and and the personal connections they talk about the money raised like, like that was the measurement of success mm. put it in terms of letters what was that success in terms of letters millions millions of letters and pictures and I mean in the early days, I used to process the letters myself, so it's for the good old days when you're involved in everything at a, mm-hmm. <laughs> at a startup. startup, startup mode, yeah. Mode. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, the more you grow, the more you get taken away from what you're most passionate about. But anyway, um, it was an American woman who wrote letters about her garden, and she described the garden. Mm in details um, and the evolution of the garden she like really it was very personal for her and the woman she wrote it to was going through war in a besieged city in Sarajevo and they were shelled as they had like would line up for water and food and bread and all of these things so the Bosnian woman was vicariously living through the garden and like there's hope, there is like somewhere else there are flowers blossoming, mm. you know? And and then yeah. that's and peonies opening. And the peonies opening. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I always think about that power of storytelling when people say, Well, you know, what good are uh, you know, English language arts sort of degrees and so forth? And it's almost like this pandemic, anytime we are alone and don't have that connection to the world, suddenly uh, the, the, the currency of those arts, those letters, those stories, that ability to share is like, oh, now, now it's sort of laid bare. Now, now we get it. <laughs> it's true. And every time we tell our story, I feel 
the story becomes the gift to the other. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when I hear someone's story, I feel it's their gift for me. It's the most honorable <gasps> Ooh, gift for me. <laughs> okay. Uh, but these oak leaves are, are notoriously slippery. Yes. And crunchy. And crunchy. Yeah, I, I was glad to hear you start to draw this connection to the Me Too movement and the sort of um, shared sisterhood. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that bond and connection of sisterhood is out beyond just being on the losing end of patriarchy. What is it? Very, I love this because I love this. <laughs> um, I'm, if anything, I'm obsessed about this subject because I think there's an evolution, right? Um, the first breaking out of the cycle of uh, oppression is to speak the truth, is to break away from the silence. And, you know, and as women, silence was the code we were given you have to stay silent, right? So the first wave is to break up, break out of the silence and speak the truth. And that is a very scary, very scary proposition. Step off the cliff. When I broke my silence, it was jumping off the cliff and I had true real fear in me. Mm. A fear of life and death, you know, when I broke my silence. So that was a real thing. But that's the first step. Then the second step, you sort of, I'm telling you my personal journey at least, you know, you first like, wow, when I break out of my silence, there's power in it, you know, because it's like, you own the story, you're afraid, you're afraid, you're afraid. And then finally you say, I am going to speak up. And the speaking up, you're stripping naked oh. in front of the whole world. But you are like taking control and doing it. You're, you know? you're the one disrobing. You are the one. And so no one can blackmail you with that fear. Right. The worst that could possibly happen is to be stripped bare and you've done it to yourself. And you're like, I think your how I feel. My term, here I am. My word, mm. my narrative. Your language. My language. I define the story, my story. Yeah. So, and it's very powerful, right? Then it's preceded by anger, you know, or fierceness, maybe not anger, fierceness. Like, like an embodied anger? Like a char- it's a positive anger. I really have no problems with anger. It's fierceness, like okay. charging, you know, um, because you sort of understand how much has been inside mm. and the release outside. The cry first, but then you like have like, I want to help others to do it. You know, there's an energy. The drive to, to sort of put that anger to productive use. To productive use. It's like a John of Arc kind of a... Mm, like a mission. Mission, right? But then... It's one thing that we speak up, it's important. And we show the fierceness. How do we now lead like women, not lead like men? 
and that how do we define and how do we find find our feminine voice and our feminine power and we have so much suppressed and narrowed the feminine as being kind and nurturing and beautiful and all of that very much on the surface and i think is defined by the patriarchy itself mm -hmm. to be a feminine person is to be soft and and nurturing kind and as opposed of us defining the feminine mm. and us finding it within us and the depth of it and discovering all of it in us now the journey is to show and demonstrate what leadership means in a new way not in a not repeat the same patriarchal way of leadership so that you have to go inward and find the connection inside find your own voice not in reaction but in proaction in definition of the actions you do not the actions that you're no longer doing exactly and in demonstrating and that's my call for all women right now that we are so far we're doing good but if we don't take the moment to define our own feminine values and demonstrate how we lead from our strength not in reaction then we may lose are there feminine values that aren't at the individual level is there something that could be said of feminine values in that more You know, I, I think I, I struggle with this because yeah. the, the gender binaries, I act, my, my partner actually recently came out as non-binary. And yeah. so I've been struggling a lot with, well, what is a gender binary and where do they help? And when I'm in nature, I see binaries. Uh -huh. I see binaries and they're useful. Yeah. They're tools that help us show a duality and the importance 1, of attention and duality. Yes. And yet at the same time, some of the binaries that have been operative in our lives are just so toxic and we got to get rid of them. Absolutely. What are you still seeing that's positive in this feminine binary, particularly in leadership? Well... I feel we need to discover it in ourselves first, right? I don't think of feminine as soft. I think of feminine as fierce. Sure. But there is a, it's a different energy than the masculine. And I'm not against the masculine, but I'm again against the patriarchy, you know? Sure. <laughs> it's yes. different concepts, right? Yes. So few feminine values that I have come to discover from really talking to other women who have done their journeys. And courageously so. Like, you have to go inward. And one of them is the creation of safe space. Mm. Safe space is where we can have uncomfortable conversations. Mm. And this is what we need in our country right now. So much so. You know? So much But, so. And a lot of people say, well, what do you mean by safe space? We don't know how to enter into a safe space. You know, what is, that's a feminine value. How do you create safety? Mm. Um, and I don't, mm. you know, feminine value is how to generously listen to the others. You know, whether you agree or you disagree with them, but really understand how to completely listen to the story as they experience it and see it. You don't have to agree, but you need to see it from their perspective. Just hold the space for the story. Because it's a growing process for you. To listen. To listen. There's listening where you're asking questions from your mind that comes out as interrogating. And there's listening where you're listening from your heart and you're inquiring from your heart. And people understand, there is a tone difference. There is a difference. That connection to your heart is a feminine value, which, by the way, can happen in men, too. I mean, feminine is not women. Right. It's more an aspect. It's not it's what's an, in your pants. But it's or, a new yeah. skill set, I believe, we need to, to, new emotional skills that we all need to teach ourselves, women and men. 
right. you know, in and order to emerge out of this in, a, in unity with, yeah. with ourselves, with each other, and frankly, with nature. Yeah. And it sounds like creating that safe space is less about this um, sort of tired idea of the feminine as like soft and like let's throw out a bunch of bean bags for people to like no. go into. It's more about this, this, this sort of strong, grounded um, courageousness of the heart. And, and I just, I, I, I think there's like this opportunity to reclaim the word courage and merge it with heart because in French, le coeur, it's like this, the same word means heart, you know, and it's like you have to have heart. It's all really coming from the same place. And I think we've lost that idea that, you know, this, that, that, that courage can be heart-centered. Um, and then, and, and, and you can be courageous in your listening, in your empathy, and to inhabit somebody else's heart. It actually, it takes the harder courage to listen <laughs> with your heart. Yeah. The easier courage is to go and fight a battle. It's physical, it is aggressive. Right. That's, that's it's doable. othering, it's othering. The right, battle, it's othering, right? right? And we have all mastered that. I mean, I mastered it. I'm sure a lot of people who mastered it in their own lives, we know how to do that. That's what the patriarchy have taught us. The aggression, fight for your rights, da, da, da. The different carriage to show up in integrity and in alignment between your voice and your actions. You know, in an alignment between your values and, and, and who you are. That's just a very, and, and to speak your heart. And I feel like the emotions we need of the moment, the sensory, the language is no longer intellect. The language we really need to develop is, is, is more feelings. Yeah. I think of, you know, you think of the bower, right? Like the, the, the sort of stand of trees that protects what's in it. Like that safe space is created not because something is soft or gushy in between there. So it, it, that space is created because of trees buffeting from the wind. Like they're literally, it, it requires strength to have a safe space within. But they have to be rooted and they have to be, mm -hmm. they're, helped, they're connected to each other. Exactly. Right, right. Yeah. It, it, it's a shared effort to, to provide a strength that allows for the shelter. Exactly. Um, how, how do we get there? You know, well, that's why I feel this is a, I mean, COVID may have been a blessing in disguise, you know, because I don't know about you, but you know, the, the, the weeks that everyone in earth slowed down and we all went to our hearts, you know, mostly. And, and politicians were speaking of kindness, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and empathy and compassion. I mean, so it's like, I'll say it in another way. I, I'm from Iraq. I went to Mosul when ISIS, uh, three weeks after ISIS was overthrown. Oh, wow. And... And the ISIS story was particularly personal for me because it's my people. Like, yeah, it's not. It's not abstract. This is. It's like how could the people I, in the country I grew up in, in the language I spoke, the religion I grew up in, yeah. how could they actually do this? Like it was horrifying. It was an absolute heartbreak. So. I was curious to understand. Yeah. So I went 
to Mosul and I literally walked the streets and people start walking to me, towards me garbage collectors teachers housewives everyday folks and they all were saying the exact same thing and they were like we became the nuclear bomb on ourselves it wasn't thrown out on us from above we became the nuclear bomb and they say every time someone came and promised us money and power in exchange for certain actions we did it and so and they go back to Saddam's time and they say Saddam say do this and we did it and then Al-Qaeda came and they said do this and we did it and at first you know kill the enemy then kill the people in the other religions then kill the women then ISIS was where the sons were pointing the guns on their parents oh my god and so they were like saying we became the nuclear bomb and they were and they were saying we need uh, there's one woman she's like fierce crying she's like I will clear the rubble from in front of my house I will do it I don't need help in rebuilding the bricks and mortars. We just need help in understanding how to build a new human being with a new value system because the old values failed us. And in a way, now we, this was three years ago, but I think the old values are failing us here too. I was going to say, I, as you were describing that of like thinking about people who speak your language, who are your neighbors, I just watched 68 million of my fellow countrymen double down and I, 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 I'm feeling that kind of, I don't understand. And for the same promise of power With the same promise, exactly. Well, I think this is the invitation. You know, it is a great moment of political tension. I'm going to quote you. uh, Only when I began to see the other within myself could I truly see the other in them, in the, quote, rednecks of America, quote, Arabs of France, quote, fundamentalists of Islam, and in all of us. From there, we start to bridge the divide between us, between them, the many others out there, and our inner other, who we live with every day. A true hero is an ordinary person who can hold the sword of truth and tell the truth of herself in her good, her bad, and her ugly qualities. She makes her choices from this understanding. As heroes, we move forward, not in fear and anger and integrity, love and vision. We work from the strength of our spines rather than the breathlessness of our chests if we have the courage. You know, is that, is that how we begin to build a new human being, is to, to own our own darkness? Well, first of all, I was like, that's such a good house. Like, I'm t- <laughs> Who <wrote> I, was, <laughs> I was like, it's so true to me. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm glad I still believe the same way. <laughs> um, well, when we look at the other in us, we, create, we develop true compassion. And the other in us, the part of us that is the shame of our action. Mm. And so we usually, I do, Put it on the side and like, la, 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 la. <laughs> Moving on. Move on. <laughs> you know, 
And I had to learn the hard way to look into it. And it happened because I actually, I mean, talking about the country, right? And in my case, it happened because someone I loved betrayed me. And I couldn't understand how could this person do that, you know? I just couldn't understand it. So a friend of mine said, can you look at your, the part of you that has betrayed you? Hmm. That's a hard question. And of course there's a part of me that betrays me. There's a part of all of us that betrays us. However way, I, I, you know, each, to each has her or his story, right? But whether it's our shame, whether it is our malice, our greed, our anger, our jealousy, whatever it is, that the emotions we don't want to acknowledge, right? And when I looked at these emotions in me, I actually had um, compassion towards it. I felt bad for it. Your own insecurity. Yes. Mm. Like rather than being harsh on it, I felt really bad for it. Like, oh... It's just an insecure child here, <laughs> you know? And I learned to, to actually hold it and accept it. And now, by doing that, it was an automatic understanding of this other person who hurt me. And not only with him, with, po- with politics. And let me... Yeah, say more. I'm a Muslim woman. I am from Iraq. I have color. (laughs) I shave my head. Like, I can't tell you how much humiliating, insulting, disrespectful thing you go through, even by some friends Mm. who make comments about your culture or you. And then, of course, by the public. I mean... For the longest time, my people were seen as the terrorists, mm. as the crazies, as the warmongers, as the killers, as la la la. And at the beginning, it used to make me very angry. And I was just like, we shout at the person who would. And I realized in my anger, I was scaring them. And all what they say, look how angry you are. And then I get ashamed of my anger, my shadow, and then I shut down. Then, when I understand, started seeing my shadow in me I changed my tactics I used to snap out and it's like you're racist and the minute I do that I just see the person like their wall comes in the sense and then there's it there's no conversation and I decided to change tactics and the tactics was only can I could only learn it after I learned to see what Jay just wrote is see the other in me so then my tactics now is like, you're afraid. And immediately, because they are afraid, the other is afraid. I was like, immediately, there's an acknowledgement. You're afraid that my people will do this, 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 and like this. And there's like, oh, yes, I am afraid. Right. And, and it doesn't negate your anger. You didn't stop being angry or frustrated well, by it. You just changed the tactic by which... I changed you the tactic, the and it, it actually I also moved from anger because my goal is like I'm closing the roads with anger, so I have to change and find another way. So what's the other way? To my goal is to move forward, right? To right. not be objectified or cornered into one identity. And but so, also not to say that that's okay. Not to back away not. from not calling it out. But the only way to move forward is for them to understand my story, my narrative, my identity, 
right? Like, what's the point of calling someone a racist if they don't understand why I call them a racist and my own humanity? Sure. I mean, so. I think some people would say, though, is that your job? That, like, it's, the burden's back on you. Well, you know what? It is. And it's unfair. Yeah. It's very unfair. But in my experience working in war zones, that the burden is on the victim side. Actually, not only the burden, the legitimacy comes from the victim side to show the path forward. You can't let the aggressor define the path forward because the aggressor, ah. I'm simplifying that obviously, right? The bad people, good people, whatever you say. Sure, sure. You know? The aggressor cannot define the rules of the game, of the new game of how do you heal. I remember reading in uh, your uh, Freedom is an Inside Job, which is a, which is a great title, by the way, for Thank a book. Um, about the Rwandan process that the, the jails and the court system was so overwhelmed yeah. that they resorted to this more ancient form of adjudication and, and healing where the elders would get together in front of the village, the whole, everybody would witness, and the perpetrator would come and say what they had done and speak about their feelings of it. And then they would meet out a, a, a punishment, but it, it, was, it seemed not punitive more than just an aimed at healing. I, wouldn't, I would call it a, a, a healing prescription where someone who burned down someone's farm would say, okay, you, it looks like you're really atoning for this. You're going to go work on that farm until it's green again. And they did it not only for moral re reason, they actually did it for practical reason. They did not have enough jails to put all the criminals in it. They did not have enough lawyers or judges to prosecute all the criminals, right? Now, look at us in this country, here in America. If we talk, we talked about the Me Too movement, we don't have enough jails for all the men who have violated women. We think it's the Harveys, as it is Harveys, Weinsteins, and all this, true. But for every Harvey, there's a thousand other men who have violated. They just happen not to be famous and rich, right? Exactly. So we don't have enough jails. We don't have enough of a system to deal with that. Same thing with racism. So we don't have enough. So you find another path because the path forward, we all need the path forward, both sides, basically, including the victim side. I mean, I know a lot of people saying, you know what? Forget it. We're moving in our own path. See, I love this tree. It's mm. so cool because it's like, a, do you go through the tunnel or do you mm. go around it? Mm. <laughs> and every day, <laughs> it's a game I play with myself. What do you do? Yeah, I, I've been struck by these restorative justice movements and the really, like, um, sort of... Uh, almost beautiful local character they then take on because it, re it requires community to come exactly. in and do that kind of accountability, right? Because it's exactly. not just meeting out a decision once, it's, it's, it's over time. Did that person keep coming to work that Precisely. field until it was green? And you, that's not any one individual, that is a community Precisely. making that repair. Precisely. And it's defined by the victim because the victim needs to feel the remorse, needs to feel the sincerity. Mm. You get a lawyer writing an apology letter doesn't do it. You get financial, you get money. I mean, that helps, but it doesn't heal. I mean, to really heal between the gender divides or between the racial divides or whatever, we need to feel, 
you know, I mean, I, there's a process, I believe. You, we need to, A, have the safe spaces, i.e. communities. We need to articulate what's the path to reconciliation. We need to have the other side show up remorsefully and sincerely from their heart. A heart can hear another heart, you so, know? So let me ask, though, so, I, you know, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop another, uh, another of your, your beautifully written quotes. But you write, much of world's history rests on hurt and betrayal that have not been truly forgiven. Resentments are carried through generations. Families, cities, countries, and peoples all carry unforgiven divides. It takes the same emotional muscle for us to forgive someone who has betrayed our trust as it does for a nation to forgive another nation or for women to forgive men. It takes the same courage to ask to be forgiven as it does to acknowledge our role in whatever larger stories have divided us for centuries. And, you know, I recently read a piece that was just simply bluntly put it, you know, America was founded on two, it has two foundational sins, one being the genocide of the Native American people and two being slavery. True. And we have not reckoned with that, as far as I can tell, in, in any meaningful way. And so how do we begin that process and how do we respond to... I, I have had conversations with people who say, look, I'm white, I get maybe some people I was connected to a long time ago did a thing, but I didn't do a thing, and I'm not responsible for fixing it. Um, you know, how do, how do we practically move forward in this country? But the responsibility, it comes from the collective... You know, I mean, I, in South Africa, a lot of whites said that, Right. The response says, I didn't do anything. My, my grandparents or whatever did something, right? The responsibility comes out of the collective privilege. Two humans, one happens to be black or Native American and one happens to be white in the same land, they have two different trajectory in this country, right? And so the, white, the good white person came out of the privilege the injustice created, right? So, so how do you deal with it? It's not about, I wouldn't want someone to like fluctuate themselves, like, oh, you know, like, okay, I, you don't need to do that, right? But we do need to have a system corrections. And how do we go about correction of system to right the wrong, you know? And some of that is changing our economic system. Some of it is changing our emotional system. I mean, but we do need to change systems and, and that is doable. And that is possible for all of us to be part of recreating a new way of being. Well, so what would practically, I mean, I get that, I, that resonates, but practically, like, what would a truth and reconciliation process at a national level look like? It's a good question. I can tell you in other countries how they worked. Right now is the oppressed, screaming at the oppressor. Again, I'm using simple language, you know. You did this to me, right? And the oppressor, of course, not all the same people. They're good people, they're bad people, they're not all of that. Some people say, okay, what can I do? And then some people get defensive and try to vote for someone. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, it's like, I'm scared. You're going to attack me. And I would say it's a different energy. It's a proactive process. Like, I am hurt. You did this. I need you to show up and acknowledge. Acknowledge. Just acknowledge, right? That's the first step. And that creates a union in the national narrative of the injustice. 
That's what we don't have a, a same narrative in here. I have a friend who lives in Tennessee and the caregiver for her mommy, uh, for her mom, elderly mom, was uh, doing uh, the icing of the cake for her child, the Confederate flag. Mm -hmm. And so my friend was shocked. It's like, no, how could you do that? Like, do you understand that this is horrible to do that? She's like, why is our flag? And she's like, no, it's, it's associated with slavery. You cannot, she's like, no, it's not associated with slavery. It's our flag. And my friend's like, no, it hurts people when you put that flag out. That's why people are so angry and upset because it's hurtful. And the, the simple woman, and I believe, like, I mean, she's not evil, this woman, right? She's like, this friend is just like, she's so loving for her mother, elderly mother. She's care. We have to believe also in the goodness of others. We cannot demonize. And this is what I don't like about what's happening right now is we demonizing black, white people are all evil. That's not true. You know, and how do you distinguish between, how do you see the hearts of people, right? So that woman was a simple woman, a good woman, who did not have the same national narrative that a Confederate flag mm. is associated with slavery. And I think this is part of what's happening in America. So we need to create a nationalist, redraft the story <laughs> in a new way where we reach to the other and say, no, this flag means this, and that's why it hurts, and that's why people are putting it down and upset about it. Did you see what I mean? And creating that. Native Americans, when I first came to this country, I read bury my heart at wounded knees, right? And I was just like crying and sobbing and all of that. And I had a colleague I worked with. I was like, this is a brilliant book. Oh my God, I can't believe. She's like, well, for us, they are the ones who killed us. And I was shocked. I was like, what? I was shocked. So we do, there's no one narrative in this country, in most countries, you know? So the first process for reconciliation is a public process where everyone is processing that pain and everyone has to have the discipline of not projecting anger on the other and owning their story with courage. Right. Yeah. It starts with truth. You have to have truth before reconciliation. Absolutely. And even a simple statement like Black Lives Matter, that's why sometimes it feels like a radical act to just say that because if that life matters, there's all these things you then have to reconcile with to make that true. Right. In, in every way that right. everyone shows up. But the showing up is not only from all oh, the Trump supporters. The showing up is from everyone equally. Absolutely. Equally. What, what book would you say is like speaking to you at this moment right now? At this moment... At this moment, it's not. It's a. It's a. It's a book that I just finished reading by Fukumori, uh, a Japanese uh, writer. Um, it's about an artist who suddenly his wife left him and he got lost in life, <laughs> and he just took the car and sat driving and driving without any aim, and found a new way of living for him in a cabin up in the mountains and let himself be lost for a while. Literally, that's the book I just finished, you know. <laughs> let himself be lost for a while and did not paint anymore. And just read and all of that and followed the sound of mysteries, you know, and all kinds of adventures came to him mm. from the mystical world. And then he, when he started painting, he allowed himself to paint not in the structure that he used to paint, but in a new structure. Mm -hmm. And unbelievable art came out of it. 
that fascinated. It's almost scared him, the beauty of the art that came out of it. Anyway, he came a full circle and he drives back to his wife to integrate and he starts a new life. So there's something about that story. Fukumiri always write in a very mystical ways and you know, there's something about the the being because when I got sick, I got lost as well. Mm-hmm. And I got sick on a peak of my mountain, you know, I was like oh, wow. just having show that everyone was talking about in the news, da, 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 all of these things. I was like doing this and this and advising here and going this, you know, like top wow. of the mountain, right? The day I was in the hospital, I was getting ready. I had like booked, you know, I had a book speech, you know, at 5 p.m., a birthday party for a friend at 8 p.m. and midnight plane to a week in Greece with my friends. And, and I like fall from that to the ambulance room to the ICU struggling for my life. And for the year that followed, I was like, who am I? Mm. You know, like I, if I can't think, and I couldn't think, I could uh, paint, I could do color. I, I started playing the piano again. And this is one of the people think people don't know about me. Mm. <laughs> I retaught myself the piano after 30 years of not playing. Mm. And I started painting because I couldn't have words. And mm. I'm a writer. So it shocked me when I couldn't have words. And I, like, I was scared. Yeah. And, and I was just like, so I, lo- I lost, I lost myself. Like, who am I? You know? And so, and I learned that in that space, this is why I feel everyone has to do their inner journey. Because you're going to have to confront your conversation with your heart on your deathbed. <laughs> Like, if you don't do it now, you're going to confront it. Because with all family and friends and loved ones around you, you're still left in that space alone, you know, Uh, between you and your heart. And I had to confront it. And I end up living between the land of the living and the land of the dead for a year. Mm. And here's what I discovered about it. It's actually beautiful. You know, it's like that land of the, like, in between spaces is actually really beautiful. It's harder to be back on Earth. (laughs) Because you have to deal with people and you have to deal with all kinds of shit. (laughs) Mm. Um, But then I learned at one point, I just didn't know what to do. Like, you have no, you have no tools. You really didn't have to. I didn't have to. And so I just learned to trust. And I decided to trust life. Because I was either going to destroy myself in worry or to trust life. And <sighs> I mean, here I am. I mean, strong mm-hmm. physically. Mm-hmm. And I walk and I, I'm playing the piano and I'm painting, and I'm writing again and I'm doing all kinds of things. And, you know, and I'm like, and I like coming out of it, like trusting in life works even though you have to let go you have to let go and you have to also endure your fear so yes at one point I had a I was walking in nature and I I felt like I was holding the tree and refusing to let go of that identity I am the tree no 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 I'm not leaving I'm not leaving I'm like literally (laughs) and I like taped it you know (laughs) and I was like I had to like realize a surrender to the not knowing and trust life and 
so it's worth it. And like it's worth the journey, the inner journey is worth it. The trust is worth it. The letting go is worth it too. So here we are. Yeah, thank you for... There and back again. Not at all. For doing this with us. It was a really... lovely. Beautiful conversation, beautiful day, beautiful walk. Thank you, thank you. Not at all, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Wild Talk podcast, where we speak with leaders, thinkers, researchers, writers, artists, and organizers in natural settings about their work and what they can teach us about venturing into the unknown. This episode of Wild Talk was produced and edited by Matt Dellinger and Jay Erickson. For photos, links, and more about our guests, visit our website at wildtalkpodcast.com. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to rate, review, and share with friends. Looking forward to next time. See you out there. Mm -hmm.